Coming up on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, former Chartbeat CEO Tony Hale on the messy business of measuring online audiences, how Facebook and Google are assuming the role of media companies, and the vision for his new digital media startup, Scroll. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Jack Marshall and I'm joined this week by my colleague Mike Shields. Mike, how are you? I'm all right. How are you, Jack? I'm doing good. Uh, so our guest this week is Tony Hale, who was formerly CEO of well-known publishing analytics company Chartbeat and is now working on a new digital media startup called Scroll. Tony, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's good to be here. Um, so I wanted to start with something sort of topical, something that's been in the news over the past few days. Um, we talk a lot on this podcast about the impact of Facebook and Google on media companies and the media in general. Um, obviously, you have sort of a unique insight into the traffic patterns across you know, a broad range of publishers, a broad, broad range of websites. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the news that um, you know, Google and Facebook are cracking down on, on fake news sites. Uh, this is something that's emerged in the past few days. I just wondered what, what you make of that. Um, and I guess if that's potentially good news for sort of quote-unquote legitimate publishers. Well, I think anything that cuts down on fake news is probably a good thing, not just for uh, legitimate publishers, but for the rest of the country in general. Um, I think that even with them doing that, though, uh, if a publisher is expecting this to suddenly make a significant difference to their relationship with the platforms or with anything else i think they're uh optimistic this is a this is an annoying thing this is a thing which yeah may have swung us into tyranny uh but aside from that it's not the biggest problem facing publishers when it comes to the platforms so it's not as always if if you you clear out all the all the fake news and all the all the legit publishers get this get their facebook time back and everything's fine it's not it's not that kind of situation no you're you're still facing the fundamentals of uh two players who are not just kind of sweeping up the uh the advertising market, we saw this uh, uh, in terms of the advertising market maybe growing, but it's all growing to those two players. Um, but also the way in which increasingly the things that have been done by publishers uh, in the past are now being done by the platforms. And a lot of the kind of uh, the value add that publishers used to be able to do is now in their hands. So if we think about it, publishers do five things. They create, host, curate, distribute, and monetize content. Facebook now does four of those five. What's the, what's the fifth they don't do? They, they don't create. Ah, yet. You guys, you guys do the creation. They do the monetization, hard, the curation. The, yeah, pardon? Is, is creating content that hard? <laughs> Hopefully they don't, they, don't, they don't start doing that anytime soon. Well, the, well this is the, actually the interesting thing. So uh, if you think about what Facebook has done, especially with the rise of instant articles, they've done something very similar to what happened with uh, Amazon Web Services in the startup world, which was they've created a base where if you want to, if you're a young and hungry uh, entrepreneur, you no longer have to have your own CMS, you no longer have to have your own ads team, ad team, and you can compete on the same level as the big publishers. You can use exactly the same curation mechanism and so forth. And this is exactly what we saw through this election, which was very small uh, content shops who, by being incredibly lean, were able to put out content and then effectively arbitrage their way to growth because it was cheaper for them to promote. They could still make money promoting that content uh, than a traditional publisher with traditional costs. And so that kind of change is really fascinating for what media companies look like in the future. 
So, so where do you think those guys stand in sort of a post-election world? Because, you know, I think media companies of all shapes and sizes have sort of benefited over the past year to some extent. Um, again, you know, through your relationship with Chartbeat, you obviously have some sort of insight into that. Um, so, I mean, what, what do you think happens over the next year or two for, for some of those media companies? Well, I think, this, I think the same trends are going to continue, which is that traffic is increasingly moving towards mobile. Mobile tra- traffic is predominantly social. And when you have mobile uh, social traffic, a few things start to happen. So people stop going to homepages uh, and people stop uh, recirculating. They stop going from an artic- one article to another within sites. Those two things just don't tend to happen on mobile. You mean the sessions are just shorter? They tend mobile. to be single, single yeah. uh, story yeah. sessions. And what that means is you're effectively kind of atomizing content. Because what we used to do as big, as big media companies was we'd kind of do the important news that no advertiser wanted to be close to. No one really wants to advertise next to ISIS. Um, but then someone would go from the ISIS story to the real estate story where we'd make our money. And now those connections don't happen anymore. And so it's going to be a really interesting challenge for us when we have the most important content that we do as media companies no longer able to kind of really be monetized in the same way. I wonder what, what can change that. And does face, could Facebook do that where they bring, help bring packaging and, and serendipity back to publishing with instant articles or some kind of recommendation engine if they even care about that? I think... I think that Facebook wields enormous power and could do a, a, a bunch of different things. But I think the challenge is, is that if you still have atomized content and there's no reason for one, part, one piece of content to subsidize another, no natural reason, and if an advertiser doesn't want to be next to a certain kind of content, then that content is effectively worth nothing. It may be worth a tremendous amount to us as citizens and as, as people who want to be informed, but if you can't have any, someone want to sell their hemorrhoid cream next to it or whatever it is, then why should Facebook do that? And I think one of the things that uh, – and the Facebook people are, are kind of great people, but they've been very, very focused on uh, maximizing the total amount of engagement and maximizing uh, the amount of revenue they can get as, you know, as a private company should be. I mean that's interesting because that assumes that it's sort of based on a, an advertising revenue share model. Meanwhile, the Snapchats of the world are sort of moving to a slightly different model where they're sort of paying up front for content or paying sort of a flat fee to publishers. Mm -hmm. Um, So could that sort of change? I mean, in sort of the the situation that you described. I think it's difficult in some ways uh, to compare Snapchat and and Facebook because I think of Snapchat as being a very different company. In 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 effect, it's a TV company. I mean, these guys are based out of L.A. and they think very, very differently to Facebook. So Facebook, you can have 10,000 uh, different content streams, let it all bloom, uh, and we're going to monetize each one of these things uh, with, uh, with targeted uh, advertising. But if you look at what Snapchat does, it says we're going to have a few major channels, and we're going to throw hundreds of millions of people at those channels. Right, everybody gets can, the same Snapchat. Yeah, right and now. we're going to get, uh, and, and because of that, we're going to have really, really amazing advertising because you're going to be able to afford, if you know that your ad is going to be seen by 100 million people, you can put budget behind that. So we're going to have high quality advertising going through a few channels uh, after these people. So it makes total sense for them to be able to say, you know what, yeah, I'll buy this uh, in advance and I'll do that because it's basically just TV economics. That's interesting, yeah, because a lot of people make that comparison with Facebook, but I guess Snapchat is perhaps a more direct one. Yeah, I, I, I th- in terms of with TV, I mean, when when I think about Snapchat and when I think about how they how they view the future, especially in terms of monetization, 
if you think about them as a TV company, not as a Silicon Valley company, like everything just makes more sense. Um, so you mentioned this already, but one, one other thing I wanted to mention was sort of this idea of shifting to mobile. And this is something that you and I have talked about in the past. Um, but is there, I mean, obviously mobile use is, is growing. Um, but to what extent are audiences shifting to mobile? And to what extent is mobile just sort of growing and unlocking, you know, more sort of time? And that's, yeah, that's a good point. So uh, in general, mobile is accretive. By which I mean that what you see in terms of mobile versus desktop behaviors is that mobile tends to spike in the mornings and then desktop often takes over during the day. And then in the evening, mobile and actually tablets spike uh, as well. people are still at their desks for yeah, eight exactly. hours of the day in, in so, many cases. So, yeah. So what you're seeing is that uh, what mobile has done is it's unlocked a huge amount more available time uh, for media companies and others to kind of access that individual. Uh, and so desktop in general for most people has re- has been either relatively flat or even slightly growing. There's only a few people who've seen a decline. And when they have seen that decline, the decline has not been as great as the growth has been in mobile. So at this time, mobile has been largely accretive. However, I wouldn't want to extrapolate and then just say desktop is going to be it's, it's fine forever. I think as we increasingly start to move uh, more and more of our kind of day-to-day functions towards mobile, I think that might diminish. What, what do you make of, there's been a lot of activity in the, in the ad industry of trying to make the mobile ad, uh, publishing an ad experience better, faster, you know, stripping out all the excess trackers that you have to deal with, bad ads. I wonder if, it, if it's making an impact. Does it even matter if, we, if what you described, if we're, if we're in a, pla- a world where you only use five platforms anyway on your mobile phone, is all that going to be for naught? What, what do you, what, what's your take on that? I'm trying to find the right analogy, and uh, and the only one is like someone. It's almost like in Fight Club, where you see the guy kind of punching himself in the face, and then trying to protect himself from punching himself in the face at the same time. In the the like the industry, ad industry is full of good people who genuinely want to create a better experience, but they're up against some fairly fundamental uh, industry structures. Um, and so you've got a few. So one with the move to mobile. Um, you have the fact that generally the ads that make money are kind of big interstitials uh, or video ads, which means that whatever you're doing, you're doing, you're going for a larger ad load than you were before uh, and over something where people now pay attention to the cost of data. Most people, most people do. And so you have those things happening, but you also have them happening at the same time as you've had the rise of viewability. And before we could have the ads, you know, hidden away on the side or at the bottom and it was fine. It was fine. Well, not for the advertiser, but for everybody else, it was fine. Um, but now, as, as what you're seeing is you're seeing increasingly sophisticated advertisers saying, you know what? What I want is I, I don't just want one second and 50% in pixels. I want, you know, I want a full screen experience where they have to see it for three seconds uh, and so forth. And whilst you have competition in a market economy to try and drive uh, more and more dollars to you from these advertisers – even though you want lean, clean ads and so forth. In fact, what you're going to be selling is more interruptive, richer, more, more engaging uh, ad units. So I think it's going to be very, very difficult for you kind of to stop these, these trends as they go because as much as they'll get together and say, we want to have this better experience, everything else is pushing them in the other direction. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Tony Hale. Uh, Tony, I wanted to ask you, this is a broad question, but about sort of the state of online metrics as they stand today. And by that, I mean, for a few years, it seemed everybody was out sort of swinging their comm score numbers around. Uh, that sort of migrated into Facebook video views and sort of distributed engagement. Um, you know, I know Chartbeat, for example, uh, was sort of pushing uh, like an attention type metric as a better way to sort of measure engagement with content. Um, so where do you, where do things stand sort of today and, and where are they going on that front? Well, it's still all a bit of a mess really, isn't it? Uh, it well, seems I'm, that way. One of my favorite things is, uh, if, if I'm going into a publisher and, uh, I ask them like, what are their uniques? And they say, um, do you want our comp score uniques or our real uniques? <laughs> uh, and I always get a little giggle out of that. Um, so you have, you, you, what's interesting to me, the, the most interesting thing to me is, whether uh, the platforms are going to have to be brought in line with the others. Because what you've seen um, at least once now, possibly twice, uh, depending on when this podcast goes out, uh, is large platforms having to uh, restate their metrics. when Because up until now, they've been able to just say, you know, these are our numbers. And everyone's kind of trusted them. Uh, and said, yeah, like a Facebook view is a Facebook view. Our reach, uh, our reach is X, and that's fine. And now with these platforms having to restate their numbers, it brings in a certain amount of doubt. And, and what it suggests to me is that actually maybe some of the third-party measurement vendors, such as the moats, such as the integral ad sciences, uh, are going to start kind of deepening their integrations in with the platforms. Uh, and that is interesting, not just from uh, in terms of how it might change metrics, but also as to whether uh, it changes the kind of stranglehold that, say, Comscore has had uh, over much of the industry. Because uh, Comscore has been this this company that I'm not sure of a single publisher that likes them, um, but, but everyone consistent. uses them. It's consistent. Yeah, exactly. It's like, right. It doesn't matter if it's wrong because it's consistently wrong, and that's all that, that kind of matters. And that's kind of one of the wonderful things about network metrics. Um, so you have so you have interesting things in terms of the that competitive landscape changing, and in terms of also the metrics. I mean, we've uh, like a few years ago, you had it was like we only cared about kind of click-through rate uh, and impressions and that was and that was it and that was fine and then everyone kind of jumped onto the social bandwagon because we thought that we might be able to find something better uh and then we found out that social likes had actually no correlation with engagement whatsoever which was a bit of a shame um and so now we're in this kind of this kind of a little bit of a morass where we realize that the metrics that we're using or have traditionally used are not great, are not doing the things they want. Like, no one's particularly happy. Uh, but yet moving people towards better metrics takes a certain amount of coordination with which the ad world in general is unfamiliar. Right. Like, on the, you, you've, you talked about the, the time spent being something you were, you were trying to push. I hear that more lately from publishers, that they're trying to convince advertisers why that's important. 
yet other people say we just got viewability going. That's hard enough to bill on and track. You know, t- give me give me a chance with time spent. Where where is that in the in the path of tracking better? For sure, and this is this is kind of one of the interesting things. So if you look um, at the data, and this is actually kind of through peer peer reviewed journals. Uh, the one thing that reliably shows a positive correlation, actually a causative actually uh, impact on recall and recognition, which is the sine qua non for advertising, uh, is the amount of time the ad spends in front of your face. Now that actually works on a logarithmic curve. So it's on a it's on a diminishing return. So the first second is the most valuable second. The second is the second most valuable second, and and so forth. And so once you hit twenty seconds, eh, like the twenty first second isn't really worth that much to you. But that's still like the science is absolutely clear on that. The challenge is, is that even though we know that to be true, trying to change an ad world, as you said, like, my God, we've just got our head around viewability. Now I have to retrain an entire sales team around this. And by the way, the 22-year-old media uh, planner does not have a line in their Excel spreadsheet which says time spent or attention or any of these things. So having to change both sides of an equation at the same time is incredibly hard. But is there any real incentive for ad buyers and marketers to transact based on that. I mean, I can see why it may make sense for a publisher. They can say, you know, we, it's worth more than you've been paying us for the last 10 years. Well, only but if, if you're an their, ad buyer, then... Only if they want their ads to work. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the fundamental thing, which is like the reason why you use uh, a better metric is because you want to get better performance, you want to be able to judge. And the challenge right now for ad buyers is you're buying a ton of actually... Uh, of impressions of variable quality, but you can't tell the difference. And that is the interesting thing. It's like it's like going in and buying like a uh, a Skoda off the, the rubbish heap and getting a Ferrari and not being able to tell the difference between those two cars. So what you really want to be able to do is you want to say, actually, uh, impressions have variable value, and I want to be able to identify that and then apply my ad budget appropriately. And that is where it makes sense for an ad buyer. But it's also much more complex. It's much, much easier just to say all impressions are worth exactly the same. Because they're going to get that question that if, if, if they're trying to sell their, their client on, look, look, look at all the time people spent with their ads. And they're going to say, well, I wanted X amount of impressions and I wanted a price to be in a certain range. You know, that, that, that kind of drives them to the cheaper stuff, right? Sure. And, and, and it's, it's one of those challenges where you uh, what you tend to see with changes like this is – if there's enough smart people, and they tend to be a minority, who say, actually, we're going to kind of do this in a better way. We're going to arbitrage. This is like the high-frequency traders uh, in, in the finance world. There was a small group who said, actually, we found a better way where you guys see everything being worth the same. We see variable pricing, and we're going to take advantage of that. And over time, as those people take advantage of that, everyone else is going, wait, wait, why am I not as successful? And that's when you see change. I think if you're going to – I don't think that change comes in a uniform fashion. Mm. And also I think that any time you're trying to move an entire industry, it's going to be achingly slow. So as you say, more people are talking about this. But we started talking about this maybe in 2012. So let's check back in in 2020 and see how we're doing. Okay, um, so talk a little bit about your your new endeavor, Scroll, um, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is, um, I don't know, I kind of got the sense it was, I know it's kind of hush-hush. Yeah, we're keeping it a little bit stealthy. (laughs) Well, give us a clue. I mean, it sounds like it's sort of a a subscription-type platform, putting together content from a few different publishers, Well, so let me me talk about the kind of... We'll talk about how you got to... Yeah, I mean, that, that will get us there, I think, which is that... 
the thing that I bizarrely care about is making sure that journalism still exists 20 years from now. I think we agree. Um, I've given up, but yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, hopefully we'll all have retired or, what, or whatever. Um, but at some point, I think, you know, journalism happens to be quite important for democracy, for inspiring cynical teenagers, for all the things that, like, we uh, – and also for keeping up with the latest in ad tech. Um, all of these things are, uh, are really, really important and – I've been looking at kind of different business models for years. I mean, this is actually what first got me into kind of time-based selling. I wanted to understand, is there any way for advertising to connect the quality of the content to the value of the page? Uh, and as, as we've talked about, that's been a fairly slow process. And then I started running the numbers. And one of the kind of interesting things for me is that if you look at the uh, – if you start looking at, the, say, the top 75 or so publishers uh, and you actually look at their revenues on an ARPU basis – in aggregate, they make about two bucks sixty-two. All of them together have a total ad pie of about two bucks sixty-two. Um, so that's how much they with, make per user per they? user yeah. per month. Uh, so the average, therefore, is around four cents. New York Times in Q1 uh, of this year was making thirteen cents a user off that digital advertising. Obviously, so they're that's depressing. Yeah, it's a, like when you put it like that, it really is depressing, isn't it? Um, and so. And so the question then came up is there, are, are there ways in which you could start to, to beat that? Are there ways in which other business models could deliver better than an average of four cents a user a month? And so I started chatting to uh, a good friend of mine who, uh, I, who I knew was an expert in this. He was the VP of content at Spotify. Uh, uh, and he, before that, he spent five years at Universal where he did the deals looking at all the different business models in the, in, in the music industry. And then he did the deal with Spotify and then like a member of the SEC and Goldman Sachs, jumped to Spotify uh, uh, and worked there, like looking at content and analytics. And as as he and I started to kind of like mess around with the different business models, we started to say, actually, you know what, maybe there's a way for uh, for there to be a better business model. And this was happening at the same time as we were seeing increasing frustrations uh, with the experience that publishers were able to deliver, and not because publishers wanted to deliver a bad experience. They genuinely wanted to create a good one, but the stress of ad load and everything else and causing all the debates that we've seen is doing that. And right now, the inability of publishers to have a business model that supports just a good, clean user experience means that they're being forced into the platforms or to deal with ad blockers, neither of which is an ideal situation if you believe in a free and independent press. And so for me, and this, as, a, as I said uh, in, uh, in the article in which we were outed, um, <laughs> it's super early days for us. You know, we're a small team. We've raised a bit of money. Uh, we raised it from uh, both VCs and also from publishers because we wanted to kind of start off with that from, from News Corp uh, and from uh, Axel Spring and the New York Times. Uh, but what we want to see is we want to see if there's any way for there to be a better way for there to be a free and independent uh, media uh, that can deliver a great experience and get paid for doing so. And that's, that's, that's the dream. So is that is that giving up on digital advertising for those guys? This company will not be focused on digital advertising. I don't think anyone. I don't think digital advertising is going to go anywhere anytime soon. What we know is that most people are fine with digital advertising. Some are not. We should probably have a business model for them too. Do you think this is a moment in time in which people are perhaps more prepared to pay for news content? <clears throat> I, I think. Excuse me. I think in the last two weeks it has been. I mean, you've seen... Because I know the Times and the Journal have actually come out and said, you know, we'd 
we've been yeah, selling more subscriptions in the past five days than. Yes, it, it's it's amazing what uh, effect Donald Trump will have on subscription sales for journalism after the after the moment. Um, it would have been nice if they'd done it a year before, uh, but I'm not complaining. The so yeah, let's. I mean, I I hope that they sustain those levels. I really do. I do think that there is. Uh, there is a new awareness. I mean, I certainly uh, speaking to a lot of people over the last couple of weeks who've been happily using ad blockers uh, and so forth have suddenly realized that they don't get to complain about an election after having tried to defund one of the main checks against tyranny. Like, you don't get to do that. You've got to step up. And so I think... Maybe one of the things that we'll see is a new sense of responsibility, but I don't know whether it's going to last a month, a year, or a generation. So I feel like there have been sort of a few attempts to try and do a similar thing. I think there's a company called Blendle, I believe, which mm-hmm. is sort of micropayments. I think Google even... The graveyard is littered with corpses. <laughs> right. Well, you said it. Um, so, I mean, how, I, I don't know. How, how is your approach going to be any different? Well, that's or? the secret, isn't it, Jack? Okay. okay. So we'll recap on that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so talk, talk a bit more about like the state of online advertising. I mean, you just said that you don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon, but it does feel like there's sort of a, a shift. I mean, you mentioned ad blocking. Um, I, I feel like marketers to a certain extent are maybe cooling off on sort of display advertising at least. There's the rise of sponsored content. Um, so how, how do you see that sort of evolving? Well, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because you see, like, cooling off and display advertising is something that's been happening for five years. I mean, it's been everyone's favorite uh, topic of conversation to bag on uh, on display advertising uh, and to talk about how wonderful native advertising is. Um, I think one of the challenges that that we have in that is that you you seem to have two very different types of native advertising to begin with. In one kind, you have custom great native content that has been created with a specific audience in mind, often very expensive to produce. This is kind of like uh, stuff like the New York Times did with T-Brand Studio and uh, and so forth. And what you see with that from the data is that tends to have actually very similar kind of engagement rates uh, as normal content. It actually does the job. It gets someone to read the content. However, when you look at uh, other native uh, advertising content, often it's very, very different. So with the stuff that hasn't been, uh, which is much more kind of like thrown over the wall, uh, you tend to see much, much worse performance in terms of people actually reading this stuff. Uh, And so one of the things that I'm kind of interested in is once we're through the kind of jazz hands era of native advertising. uh, I like that. it's, It's true. And we had exactly the same thing in the early days of display. We had crazy CPMs. Uh, in the early days of display. People used to click. Even. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, now we have the first interactive advertising. <laughs> no, more, no more of that useless TV stuff. People will can click on this stuff. And so people pay crazy CPMs. And now with Native, like, I have heard about $5,000 CPMs for Native campaigns. That's insane. I suppose it depends what you're getting. I mean, to your point, what is... What is native like? What, so, what, what do I get for that? That's so this, this, this is so this is the challenge. So I think that I, uh, I think some. What do I think? I think there is. I think there is a shift, but I think that people are utterly conflicted in this industry between the things that they would like to do and the economic norms of efficiency and scale that they want. 
because also as well as a challenge, say let's take an august publication like the Wall Street Journal. One of the interesting things about uh, people who have made their business almost solely on native advertising is they tend to have to become platforms, as in places which do not have a single editorial voice, but let it multiple multiple people in. So we saw this with Forbes, we saw this with BuzzFeed, and so forth. Yeah, they sort of rented out. They can, yeah, they ha- they have to. And when when you can do that, when you're not expecting a singular editorial voice, you can have native at scale because the person is already going in, not expecting necessarily every piece of content to have the authority of the editorial team and uh, and so forth behind it. If you're the Wall Street Journal, where one of your kind of value adds is that editorial voice, that authority, how many pieces of native can you run before that starts to be diluted? You can't, it doesn't scale in the same way as it does on a platform. And so that creates a challenge of like, what's the upper limit before the user experience uh, for an editorial dri- editorially driven publication uh, suffers compared to a platform. Can you just say native is the future or do you have to still have something like a display ad, something that actually monetizes next to it? Because here's the other challenge. Going back to what we said in the beginning, if content is predominantly mobile, if it's predominantly social, social then that piece of native, native advertising exists separate from all the other pieces of content. And so in fact... In a pure native advertising world, the only reason for you to create those other pieces of content is as brand marketing for the others. So now what we have... Well, that's sort of the BuzzFeed model, right? Yeah, it's like we're going to be a native uh, advertising agency with a really expensive brand marketing department formerly known as the newsroom. Or or there's the programmatic native, which is really just display ads in a different spot, right? Which I think you probably risk having the same kind of ignoring level that you have with regular banners, right? Yeah, I think... think there are tremendous challenges there. Uh, I haven't looked at the data in a in a few months uh, on on that front, so I won't speak to that. Um, what I would say is, though, one of the things that I've seen in some of the programmatic native things is that they've been using the same metrics as display uh, programmatic. They've been saying, but our our click through rates are are fabulous on this thing, comparing it to a click through rate on a display ad, which is. Uh, apples and oranges uh, in this context, and also often charging on impressions of the link to the content. So we're so going to put our twice, we're, yeah we're going to put our link on the homepage of uh, of site X, and every time someone loads the homepage of that site X, we're going to charge it because that's what you do in Display Programmatic. But that, when it comes to native, when someone has not read the content, doesn't necessarily know that like fifteen ways in which you can spruce up your home is uh, related to frigid airs, like that performance is going to be questioned at some point and we're going to have to come back with better metrics and when we do come back with better metrics we might not like what we see okay well on that note i think we're going to have to tie it up there but what an uplifting podcast yeah i know right leave it on a high note um but tony thanks a lot for joining us this has been great thanks Thanks, everybody for listening and uh join us next week wsj podcasts listen ambitiously